Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Is every story we talk about somehow represented in the uh, Library of Shakespeare? Well, we're going to talk about that today, talk about Shakespearean ideas, especially of villains, and the idea of the villain in modern media and in Shakespeare with Austin Titchener, who is an actor, playwright, and the artistic director of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. We'll get into all that more right after this commercial break. We have no control over Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. I'm joined, as I said, by Austin Titchener. Austin, I'm so excited to have you as our guest. Uh, you were uh, one of our guests when I was doing the Thor Minute by Minute podcast, and you just brought such great analysis and just warped my brain on so many different things that I knew I had to get you on the podcast. So I'm just so glad you can be here today. I'm thrilled to be here. It's always fun talking about Shakespeare and superheroes. I feel like I've been doing that a lot lately. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, we can do. We can. You know, we can delve into some Star Wars, which you know, different kinds of heroes. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm 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 better at Star Trek. Okay, Star Trek can come up. Uh, what, what's your anime knowledge? I'm guessing maybe not the best, but it's like, slim, slim okay. to none. Is yeah. Well, we'll stick to those primarily. Uh, <laughs> well, first, I'd love to start by introducing yourself. Um, tell our fans a little bit about like, who you are and, and especially your connection with Shakespeare. Um, yeah, I uh, like so many theater people. I started out as an actor, uh, did uh, did plays in high school and middle school, and uh, was a drama major in college. <clears throat> Thought I might go to law school, but fortunately, I had a father who said, "You will hate law school. <laughs> <clears throat> go do something you love." So I got my uh, MFA in directing. It's the one thing I'm actually trained to do. Um, just because as, as a theater person, there's there's I just felt I needed a, a lot of uh, weapon uh, arrows in my quiver to uh, to make a to, to be succeed in the business. And it's absolutely turned out to be true. So now I am an I'm an actor. I'm a playwright. I'm a director. Uh, I'm a I'm a scholar for hire. I write these monthly <laughs> essays for the Folger Shakespeare Library and uh and as I've dove more, dove, dived more into... <laughs> You're the writer. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, uh, yeah. Fortunately, this is why we have editors. Right. Um, uh, <laughs> the more I've dived into theater, the more I've gone farther back to Shakespeare. And the more... I mean, it's kind of circular, uh, uh, tail, wagging the, uh, tail wagging the dog sort of situation. Shakespeare is everywhere in our popular culture. <clears throat> and so it's, uh, you know, uh, during this pandemic, I've been binging a lot of stuff and I've been taking a shot. I've been yelling, drink every time I hear Shakespeare referenced or mentioned or quoted in mm -hmm. any sort of pop culture. Yeah. And thank God I only yell it and don't actually take the shot because I'd be hammered <laughs> in five minutes and passed out because he's everywhere. And even people don't. It's one of the great things we love about doing our shows with the Reduce Shakespeare Company is people come in going. I mean, some uh, some people just love it because they know Shakespeare and they're nerds about it. But other people are sort of dragged to our performances going, oh, this is going to be Shakespeare. Oh, wait, it's funny. Oh, wait. I know more Shakespeare than I think I know because yes. people, you know, you've, it's just there. It's in our cultural DNA and it's quoted all the time. If you've ever used a slang expression like, uh, uh the rest of si the rest of silence, or, um, of course now I can't think of any, um, then you've quoted Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I can totally understand that. I, I remember taking a class on Shakespeare many years ago when I was in school and one student was really wrestling with it. And at one point he said pretty early in the class, you know, I just I find it hard to get into these plays because it just seems like it's just tropes I've heard a million times before. And the professor was like, I have so clearly failed because the whole point is 
not necessarily that this is where those tropes started, because some of them can go back even longer, but that this is where those tropes got codified in ways that, yes, so much of our culture since then has been drawing upon. Well, and I've been teaching, um, uh, I think the last time we spoke, I was in the middle of teaching um, uh, how to speak verse to graduate acting students. And, uh, and I said this on my first day of class to every class I teach, which is, how do you identify? Are you an actor? Are you a writer? Are you a sound person, a dancer? Um, uh, and that will change week to week how mm -hmm. you identify what part of the business you're in. Um, but also, what was your first impression of Shakespeare? How do you come to it? What, do you th what are your thoughts about it? And be honest, because Shakespeare is not for everyone. And yeah. I know we've been saying it for many years now because we want to strike down any barriers and, and there should be no barriers. But like anything, Shakespeare is demonstrably not for everyone. And that's OK. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, for me, he's fantastic because any story that I want to tell or any line I want to write, chances are Shakespeare's already said it and in niambic pentameter. Mm -hmm. Um so the, and the more I speak him, the the more fluent I get at him. Never, I'll never be perfect. One can never be perfect at this stuff. But it's like a foreign. It's like a language. It's like learning a language or learning how to play a musical instrument. It's just this new uh, arrow in my quiver that yeah. every time I do it, it just gets slightly more. Be more better <laughs> again mm -hmm. the english major um and uh, and slightly more uh, satisfying well one thing i think i found so fascinating and i remember talking with you helped me clarify is that at least modern day we have kind of three different versions of shakespeare and modern cinema that are happening mm. you have something like you know where it's just like you know kind of brand did of like we're just literally going to remake shakespeare but oh like what baz Luhrmann did you know set it in this kind of idea yeah. Then you have stuff like, which we'll probably talk about a lot today, movies like Thor, where there's clearly Shakespearean themes that are being played out and things like that. And I know one of the articles you just read is Bat is seeing the Batman, especially the, the Robert Pattinson version in the Batman, as a Hamlet figure. Yeah. And the third one that I, 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 I'm sure this has been happening for hundreds of years, but I've really been noticing recently, is things where it's a... A Shakespeare—it's a clear remake of Shakespeare, but you have to—you wouldn't necessarily know it going in, you know. And Ten Things I Hate About You" is often referenced in this. Um, o is maybe a more clear version. It's, it's a fellow set in high school, mm -hmm. but my personal version, because I admit the marketing never let me know this, is when I went to go see what I thought was a silly rom-com about zombies. And I didn't know, I just thought it was going to be a silly rom-com and there were zombies and the, the love interest was Julia and the, the zombie, he just made the err noise, so everyone called him R. Yeah. And as the story plays out, you're like, wait, these are two families, they're different. And you get to a scene where she's being nursed back to health by a nurse and she goes out to a balcony to talk to the zombie. And I was, oh my God, this is Romeo and Juliet with zombies. I, yeah. I, I was so blown away by that. Yeah, it's lovely when those those parallels are and those echoes are in are in the culture. And I and, and I think they're I think this is why I yell drink all the time. Yeah. I think they're there in places that they don't even comment. They're not even as obvious as what you um as what you just referenced. That what was the name of that zombie movie? The title was not great. Yeah, it was, it's um Warm Bodies. Warm Bodies. Warm Bodies. I was, yeah. I was thinking Warm Hot. Warm Heart. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, I I thought that I thought that movie was very cute. Well, and there's I, there is arguably a fourth kind of movie, which is which is the movie that's out right now, The Northman, which mm. is a version, a new retelling of the original tale, the same tale that Hamlet is based on. So it's not a remake of Hamlet; it's a remake retelling of the same fable 
legend that inspired Shakespeare oh, to write that. Hamlet. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. Have you had... I'm wondering if at this point it's just old hat and you, or like, have you had an example recently where you watch something? Like I said, I didn't know Warm Bodies was going to be Romeo and Juliet going in. Have you had examples like that where you were just, you thought you were watching something else and partway through you're like, oh, I see what the author's doing here. Um, no, I, I, I haven't been surprised in that way because I know that as a writer myself, I will, I will steal from Shakespeare all the time, you know, <laughs> that's fair. quote and Again, this is what this is why I'm uh, I'm I'm more qualified to talk about Star Trek than Star Wars is because I was a kid in the '60s watching Star Trek in, in its original run. That's how old I am. <laughs> and um and <clears throat> you know the the answer to the question, uh, where did you first encounter Shakespeare? For me, is in Star Trek because mm. not only did they have that episode um where they are uh, tracking a serial killer that might be hiding out in an intergalactic Shakespeare troupe that's traveling through space oh, performing yeah, they... Shakespeare um but they kept uh, they referenced Shakespeare I think they also brought Shakespeare in as a character on like an episode of Bewitched but like a lot mm -hmm. of 60s television they've been bringing him into pop culture and uh, for 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 decades for if not centuries and because it's a way Borrowing from Shakespeare, quoting Shakespeare, referencing Shakespeare is a way to lend a sort of literary uh, uh, credibility <laughs> uh, mm. to whatever you're doing. It's a right. shortcut. So you don't have to kind of um, uh, give it, give your piece its own integrity. You can borrow some of Shakespeare's. So we all do it. I see it all the time. But one thing I did, um, the, the biggest surprise I had was honestly this morning as we record – um, the Folger Shakespeare Library uh, posted an article that I wish I had written about <laughs> um, about uh, the Beatles' appearance on a TV show in Britain in 1964, the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. Oh, and um, where they did the Pyramus and Thisbe scene from Midsummer Night's Dream, the four Beatles did Pyramus and Thisbe, and then and 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 they do it straight, and they do it as you might imagine the Mechanicals doing it in a, in a great production of of Midsummer. But of course they're cheeky, right? They're still the yeah. cheeky uh, uh, lads from Liverpool, and they've got hecklers in the audience, not unlike the play. And then the author of the article just went and 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 went through all the Shakespeare. Shakespearean references in um, not all, but many of the Shakespearean references in the lyrics of their songs, mm. uh, or, and including like at the end of um, at the end of uh, oh shoot, is it Day in the Life? No, it's not Day in the Life. It's uh, I can't remember the song, but there's an actual quote from a BBC production of of King Lear that's in the at the mm. end of one of their songs. Um, uh, I, that kind of stuff just thrills me, you know, when it, yeah. when, when when that happens. No, I can totally see that. And I like that we're talking about that as well, because I think there, there is a very important distinction, it seems to me, between are you remaking Shakespeare's language versus are you just taking the themes and kind of telling the same story, sometimes beat for beat like it is in Warm Bodies, sometimes more, you know, uh, the theme in general, like in, in Thor and King Lear and things like that. Right. And if you're talking about these epic, like we, like we do with superheroes, these superheroes are epic operatic Right. Shakespearean in scope. So and 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 these are archetypal uh relationships and triangles as we discussed in Thor. Yeah. You know, Thor is 
is about a hero about a hero torn between uh, torn between a brother and his uh, and his father. Uh, warring brothers um, um, is a running theme throughout mm-hmm. Shakespeare. Um, in, in terms of the la- I mean the, the themes are one thing. In terms of the language, we have uh, the, the last two plays I've written for the Purdue Shakespeare Company have been um, uh, deep Shakespeare dives. The previous one was William Shakespeare's long lost first play abridged, which imagined what we called first draft Shakespeare like many of his mm. lines you know um, um, beware the Ides of February you know are just like you know, <laughs> first first draft things where you you can see Shakespeare going well no that's terrible I can fix that I can make that mm-hmm. better but to tell but in the service of telling a story that includes all of his characters so we're writing faux Shakespeare and in the most recent show that we just performed for the first time uh, in over two years just this past week is Hamlet's big adventure a prequel which is which is less um sh- less uh, uh well no it's equally fake spear right. um but it's um but it's all in iambic pentameter and it imagines it tries to answer in a really comical silly way it tries to answer some of the questions that one could take away from the actual play mm-hmm. hamlet like first right. of all where did hamlet get his amazing knowledge of theater Hamlet is the is the most theatrical character. I mean, in terms of the person who knows how theater works in the right. entire canon. Um, why is Ophelia's mother never even mentioned? Um, wh- why did not Ophelia ever take swimming lessons? That could have helped her a lot. You know, these <laughs> kinds of important. What is Polonius's first name? These are important questions. Well, I love what you're doing, and this is a, a Star Trek reference. It's been happening for far longer, but the term comes from the world of Star Trek. It seems like you're basically writing fan fiction of Shakespeare. You know, you're taking these established characters and you're trying to answer the questions that aren't answered in the main text. 100%. And I would argue Shakespeare did that as well. Not only Mm. did he steal uh, uh, plots from uh, existing writers and existing legends, he's writing kind of things he wants to see. What would happen if what would happen if the soldiers in in Henry the Sixth's army met up with Joan of Arc? Now, there you have Henry the Sixth, part one. You know, mm-hmm. th- this kind of historical what if. What was it like between Antony and Cleopatra? You know? Right. No, I, lo- I love that kind of being able to see those things. I love the way you talk about those things because it's it's not only the, the being able to take these stories and then play with them and, and tell so much more about them. Because I think one of, one of the things that I'm always so interested in, and it's funny because we just did a podcast uh, for my Star Wars podcast recorded earlier today. But it's about the idea of myth and myth making and how one of the things we talked about is that one of the reasons why Star Wars sometimes can get, you know, generational conflict. And part of it's because of dumb fans and toxicity, but which every fandom has. I'm sure there's toxic yep. Shakespeare fans out there. They're just. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Probably yeah. not as active on Twitter, I hope. But um, but that, you know, it's that a myth that's told in the in one point in time. And then when the same myth is retold 30 years later. Yeah. You know, it and like my mother, my mother was uh, someone who she she's significantly older, but she loved the original series. She watched it with me, and then she watched the next generation. And she said, "This is a great way to understand yeah. the difference between you know the hopefulness of the '60s versus the cynicalness of the '90s." Looking at how Star Trek is different in those two. Absolutely, uh, 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 Olivier's Hamlet was written as a kind of rally the troops jingoism. Uh, let's get let's uh, let's go out and win World War Two. You know, it was right. trying to rally the rally not only the troops but the populace in favor of World War Two. Um, uh, Br- Branagh's uh, um, uh, Ham- uh, Hamlet, no, not Hamlet. Did I Henry say Hamlet? 
Yeah, I meant I meant Olivia's Henry V was a rally of the troops, not his Hamlet. Mm. And Branagh's um, uh, Henry V in 1989 was uh, a different kind of play, a different kind of version that talked about the the complexities of 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 ruling. Right. Uh, the the problems of the, the the ethical compromises one has to make the decisions one has to make yeah. um I, I that's the for me that's the fun thing about Shakespeare and, and it's again a thing a, a thing I say to my students because the students some reasons sometimes students don't like Shakespeare or people just full stop don't like Shakespeare because they think it's oh god it's gonna be done this way like right. or it's got to be done in a certain way and it, it that's absolutely not true the thing that's great about shakespeare is that he's done many ways and he's done differently today than he was done 2 years ago i mean yeah. i think we they, at the beginning of the pandemic they said oh shakespeare never wrote a play about the plague except for that one instance in romeo and juliet but now that we've had 2 years of ennui existential uh, despair wondering what's going to happen next uh, will theater ever come back um will we get will things return to quote normal whatever that is um you, and then you find out that shakespeare when he during his professional life the 15 or 20 years of his of, of his professional life there was a plague every handful of years that meant that every play he wrote yeah. was a plague play written during one in the wake of one or in anticipation of the next you know it's funny this is what we're talking about on the myth podcast as well i'm such a big believer that to understand a story you have to understand what was going on you know and that uh, at the time it's written and that often history can forget that and uh the professor who taught me this when i was in grad school loved to use the example of the tv show mash because mm. you would say if you yeah. ask people today what is mash about they will say the korean war yeah but if you ask people who watched the show originally or who have studied it, they'll tell you, no, it's about the Vietnam War. Yeah, exactly. It's set in Korea, but the whole thing is meant to be a commentary on that. So, yeah, I love yes. that idea of, like, knowing these things more. Um well, and that and that's the thing too about when about when Shakespeare is produced now. You, you, the people doing the work, creating the production, need to ask themselves why this play, why now. And right. I mean, you have, you have to do that with every play, but you know, there has to be a reason to do it that makes sense for the story to resonate to an audience today, existing in today. They yeah. they don't come into the theater as blank slates. They come in with their own preconceptions and things they're concerned about. I mean, it's one reason why I've always, for me, one of my favorite sort of adaptations of Shakespeare, because it's a big change, is West Side Story. Yeah. And you can say West Side Story, you know, there's a lot of problems with it, et cetera. Maybe you just don't love the music. That's fine. Mm. But I feel like West Side Story is someone who looked at the fact that a lot of people looked at Romeo and Juliet and said, they both die? That that That's so hard. And, and so I, I think it's Sondheim who wrote it, says, what if Juliet actually is not a complete idiot and figures out what's happening and decides... I'm not going to die as well, you know, well, and that's, it changes the play so much. Well, Sondheim wrote the lyrics. He didn't write the music or the book. But um, um, and uh, people don't realize that Juliet is the smartest person in Romeo and Juliet. She's right. way smarter than Romeo than Romeo. And she's but she's living in a world where she's given no options. Her parent, her parents, everybody pushes her into this corner where her her best option is suicide and that's the tragedy of that play mm. so as part of that that even i mean not that like you know women in the 1950s had like if the best but that th by the 1950s at least in the puerto rican community she's in uh juliet julia now has um 
I'm sorry, Maria, but God, I'm an idiot, that Maria has more options than Juliet did, and that's part of why? No, it's, I mean, I think similarly, she has as few options and is subject to prejudice, but a different kind of prejudice. It's, it's right. racial as opposed to class, mm. you know, or, or whatever the conflict is between the Montagues and the Capulets. It's never, mm. that is never um, explained. Right. Yeah. Which is part of why you can then retell it every time and exactly. that thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I this is the superhero podcast. We want to get some conversation about that. Um, tell us more about this article that you wrote quite recently about the Batman. Uh, first, I love that you waited till it came out on HBO. We didn't cover it till it came out on HBO because I just in this day and age, I'm glad theaters are open. I'm glad some people can go to theaters. I want to wait till everyone can see the thing. Um, but yeah, the Batman as Hamlet. Uh, give me that. Give me that idea. Well, I, I was struck. I was struck by it because I really, I, I, as I say in the article, um, I, dr- I dreaded seeing it. It's three hours long. Do we really need another version of the Batman that, from the trailers, looks just as grim as the Christopher Nolan, mm-hmm. you know, stories? I mean, I want to go back in time now and strangle Frank Miller for writing the Dark Knight <laughs> because now we've all got to do Frank Miller's version of the Batman. And so I was delighted to to see the movie actually, and and realize that Matt Reeves, the uh, director and co-writer of the screenplay, returned the characters to his comic book roots straight from Detective Comics in 1939. Mm-hmm. Returned the character to his detective roots, where he uses his brain over his mighty but still human brawn. Yeah. Um, uh, and on top of that, um, uh, Pattinson played him, and Reeves directed him to play it this way, um, with his, um, you know, with his heart on his bat sleeves. You yeah. know, he really is, and 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 as epitomized by the by the black makeup that almost every on screen actor who's ever played Batman has had has had to wear that black makeup under the cowl so it doesn't. Right. The only, I think only Adam West is the one who doesn't wear it, and so you can see the literally the whites around his eyes uh, around the cowl. But but that's a silly truth, um, a silly truth about having to play Batman, which Reeves leaned into as a character choice yeah. that it that is reflective of of not only Pattinson's despair but his his uh, it's an external manifestation of his internal angst about his um about what's happened to his parents what's happened to his city what has happened to the what has happened and is happening to all the people he loves pattinson is probably the most emotionally tortured of the batmans right uh the various actors who've played batman and and in that way he resem- he resembles Hamlet in so many ways, and particularly in Reeves's um, uh, interpretation. I mean, this Batman has a voiceover, which is not unlike Hamlet's mm-hmm. many, 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 many soliloquies. Um, but also, uh, it's an aspect. Uh, Hamlet is arguably the greatest play ever written for all sorts of reasons. It also makes it an incredibly di- difficult play to produce successfully because there's so much going on. It, it it's all you're almost inevitably going to fail at presenting the, 
one aspect or another of the play. Mm -hmm. But because it is a ghost story, it is a domestic melodrama, it's a political melodrama about the machinations between these two Scandinavian countries, it's a political thriller about who's going to take over the throne, it's also a detective story. Yeah. Because the ghost says, the ghost of Hamlet's father tells Hamlet, revenge my foul and unnatural murder. And Hamlet wants to help his father revenge his father's ghost, but he's not convinced that the ghost is telling the truth. He has to find out for himself whether Claudius is actually guilty of the crime the ghost of his father has accused him of. Um, so... And he launches into action. He's peppering the sentries with questions. He's he's realizing, oh, wait, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are spying on me. They're not my friends. Wait, Ophelia's not my friend. What changed? I mean, he's he's seeing traitors sort of everywhere. Um, that, that murder mystery element of Hamlet rarely gets the attention it deserves, I think, in productions. And, and so I was struck by all of that in, uh, in the Pattinson-Matt Reeves Batman. Yeah. I love the way you describe that, especially I'm going to start with the makeup thing because it ties in on a couple levels. Part of what I think is so brilliant there is that, you know, the, the you say emotionally tortured, the term that the uh, people significantly younger than both of us would use is emo. And uh, what I love there is it, it so shows the emotional torturedness of the character. Yeah. Also, in that world, and I, as someone who can enjoy the male figure as well, Robert Pattinson in that makeup is the heartthrob of the emo world, you know? And so it's such yeah. a brilliant uh, movie thing to do. I've, I heard how Pattinson described as having cheekbones you could grate cheese with. <laughs> Which I, has, and that's... And it's funny about you say the term emo because I use the term emo in my in my essay. But to, the the implication of emo to me is that it is somehow performative and therefore false. And, oh, interesting. And and I that could be completely inaccurate. But so and I say this and but I say this in the essay. It's it's it's, it's it, it seems performative when you just look at it. But yeah. in certain in Pattinson's case, you go, oh no, holy crap, this is this is for real for him. Yeah, to me, I don't, I don't think of it as emo. I, I'm sorry, I don't think of it as performative, although certainly, I mean, emo is a style of music, so that's performative. But, like, right. to me, I more think of it as, and younger fans, please write in and tell both of us why we're wrong, Yeah, that a lot of it's about the sort of, like, being, it's very introspective, and so it can be kind of, like, deep thoughts, but it, it, there can be a little bit of self-mockery of, like, oh, I'm just staring at my own belly button, I'm just so whiny, but also that idea of, like, I can't make a decision, I'm so whiny, everything is so hard. Yeah. And you're the expert on me, but that sounds like Hamlet. Like, Hamlet sounds to me like the perfect emo character in that kind of perspective. Well, absolutely. I mean, well, and, and it's another it's another um, relation, another relationship to Hamlet is that, I mean, Shakespeare's plays and superhero movies share a fascination with costumes. Uh, disguises, transformations, uh, and 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 these questions of identity. And Hamlet specifically, as I was mentioning before, has an understanding of theatricality uh, and play acting and the power mm -hmm. of it. And um, I have heard tell that I have heard tell that guilty creatures sitting in a play have been struck so struck to the soul um, by what they've seen that he writes this he writes this little scene play scene uh to be performed in front of his uncle to see whether it will reveal his uncle's guilt and so emo's uh, emo's <laughs> not emo <laughs> phillips robert pattinson's uh uh black mm -hmm. makeup 
is is an echo of 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 Hamlet's um, performative play acting that he does yeah. when he, he also he, when he pretends to be mad he literally pretends to be mad he puts on a performance in the same way that Bruce Wayne puts on the costume and goes out and says I'm a creature of the night I am vengeance and yeah. Hamlet not not coincidentally Hamlet says cries oh vengeance so I mean oh. they're using the same words and I love that because we just did an episode about the Batman and one of the things we talked about is how there's this wonderful symmetry that the three of the main characters, Batman, Catwoman, and the Riddler, are all having their own struggle with vengeance and do they want to play out vengeance. And so knowing yeah. that that actually comes directly – I mean, there's lots of other uh, works that talk about vengeance, but re being reminded that that's such a big part of Hamlet. Um, I want to turn to the villain side of the conversation, but I just need to say one more thing on Hamlet. I'm wondering if this is something you've seen and have any comments on. One more, actually, way that Shakespeare kind of snuck up on me – was when I decided I kept hearing about this show that everyone loved about bad boy bikers and it was sexy men in black leather and all sorts of like great ideas and underworld gun culture. And I, you know, I started watching it and then I got a halfway into the first season and realized this guy, Jax Teller, is trying to figure out if his new stepfather and his mother killed his actual father. Yeah. Um, have you seen Sons of Anarchy? And have you the, the I've watched a little bit of Sons of Anarchy. It's just it's it's just a little too brutal for me. It's just that's people that's people fair. being jerks to each other. Um, it's like okay, I don't need that. I I respect that a ton, yeah. but it wasn't my. It's not my thing. That's fair. It, it's definitely one of those shows that even like I watched it about I think eight ten years ago. Um, and even now, I kind of think, like, because a lot of it's about, like, we just want to show you what these people are like. And by the way, they're horribly racist and sexist. And I, eh, yeah. not the stuff I love to watch. But, yeah, but knowing that it was, like, it's the Shakespeare story in a biker gang, I was like, that's that's kind of brilliant. Well, uh, uh, the same way with Empire, the story about uh, the, uh, uh, and I can't remember the, any of the names, um, Taraji P. Henson is is the woman in it. And I can't think of uh, the lead actor. Um, he, he was... Um, Oh shoot! He was the first war machine in the first Iron Man, and then he got bumped. Oh, Terrence Howard. What is it? Terrence Howard. Terrence Howard, of course. Duh. Anyway, Terrence Howard is is the the ruler of of literally Empire Records or uh, Empire or his empire. Maybe it's not literally Empire Records. Yeah. Anyway, he's the ruler of he's the ruler of his music empire, and he's trying to figure out which of his three children. We'll take over. I mean, it's absolutely King Lear, no, oh, no that. bones about it. Yeah. It, and it's great. I watched that for a couple of seasons and really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, uh, we're going to get into the villain's question. But first, uh, I do want to say a quick word from our sponsor. Uh, this show is brought to you in part by support by Manscaped, who is the best in below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineers tools for your family jewels. They've recently launched the ultimate men's hygiene. They've recently launched the Ultimate Hygiene Bundle, the performance package. Uh, it's a great thing. I've had it. I've been using it for a little while. Not a product that I thought I was going to have, but when they uh, offered it to me, I was like, okay, I'll give this a try, and I've been uh, quite enjoying it. So, Austin, uh, at our last series of podcasts, I asked you a bunch of uncomfortable questions you weren't ready for. So let me ask you this. Which Shakespearean character do you think is most likely to manscape? Petruchio is the first one that comes to mind. Okay, okay. I bet Mercutio. I bet all the peacocks of Shakespeare. Yeah. You strike me as a peacock as well, Matthew. Um, <laughs> Very much so. Very much yeah. so. The, the vest and uh, uh, bow tie I would have been wearing might have given it away to you, but I think I was in full bow tie and suspenders last time we recorded together. 
yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a, it's a great set of products, folks. Uh, and if you want to check them out, if you go to manscaped.com and use the promo code HEROETHICS, just all one word, H-E-R-O-E-T-H-I-C-S, uh, you'll get 20% off anything you want to check out. It's uh, a lot of great products, a lot of things you probably never thought of that you might want, but um, you might want. So check it out. Uh, now that I've made my guest deeply uncomfortable, I'll get back to the actual topic at hand. Um, so villains. Uh, Shakespeare obviously loves writing villains, and a lot of the villain content in Shakespeare is stuff that um, comes back again and again and again. Um, this is probably a, like people have written dissertations on this topic, but yeah. you can talk about it in five minutes, I'm sure. Talk to us about kind of the Shakespearean idea of villains. Like when you say a Shakespearean villain, what does that mean to you? I, what it means to me is that they, they are incredibly erudite and charming. Mm. Um, uh, I'm watching the uh, I'm watching and enjoying the the miniseries on uh, HBO now called Winning Time uh, about the rise of the Los Angeles Lakers basketball team in the late 70s uh, and going into the early 80s. <clears throat> and it's uh, d- <laughs> produced and directed the, at least the pilot episode by by my wife's old Second City colleague, Adam McKay. And um, he loves in all of his movies to have um, uh, characters talking to the talking to the screen and kind of uh, uh, explaining things and sharing private things with the screen. And we've seen a lot of critics taking taking it to task, um, going, oh, stop doing that. It's just so annoying. D and I, my wife and I don't find it annoying. We find it funny. We find it um, uh, ingratiating sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's on the nose and unnecessary, but, but a lot of times, and some of these characters are not great. (laughs) They're, they're not heroes. You know, they are complicated people. Uh, And that was the thing that Shakespeare did. They, he wrote complicated people and his soliloquies were ways of bringing the audience onto uh, the that character's side, and and many times those characters were villains, and so not only does it endear the uh, the audience to the villain, it makes the audience complicit in the villain's villainy. Mm. Um, so when I think of a Shakespearean villain, I'm thinking of somebody who's roguish, charming. Um, you can see why people would fall for him. They mm. also seem to be. Um, honest about themselves. Certainly Richard III. Certainly Iago. Um, Mm. Richard III you sort of root for because it's hard to know really for a modern audience, wait, who should I root for in a battle between 700-year-old English kings? Um, Iago is more problematic. I don't find him as charming. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, I wish that uh, somebody would slap Othello around and go, stop listening <laughs> to that guy a little bit. But um, I, um, I mentioned um, the movie, oh, but it's one reason why I love that movie so much is it says like, Othello, it's a bunch really of high school kids. It's a bunch of like, because Othello, it, oh, is Othello set in a Southern high school where it's a all white high school with a black kid brought in to help the basketball team win yeah. and he's dating the coach's daughter. And yeah, I, I, I love it because it helps point to the ridiculousness of that whole story. Well, and there's an argument that can be made that every Shakespeare play uh, can and should be set in a high school because <laughs> the passions of hormone-enraged uh, ro- ro- teens are exactly the kinds of passions you need to do Shakespeare. Not only does the 
language, Shakespeare's language and heightened poetry um, uh, uh, allow it, it sort of requires it. Yeah. You know, it demands a level of com- commitment and passion that um, that that is easy to understand coming from uh, hormonal teenagers. I mean, certainly understanding Romeo, like when I think back to what an idiot I was about romance at 16, like it makes Romeo, if you think of Romeo as a guy in his 20s or 30s, it's harder. But you think of him as like a lovesick, quite literally the lovesick teenager. Yeah. That story makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And on the villain thing, I I love the way you put it because it's part of why I want to ask you to talk about this topic, especially because one of the things this podcast is so interested in, yeah, yeah, is those villains who make you maybe think about them a little way or make you question because- Frankly, I find a story where the villain is a clear bad person and the hero is just gets to use whatever violence you want against them and it doesn't matter because they're clearly evil McEvilson. I find that story kind of boring. But like, yeah, it is. I mean, that's that, you're right. You're 100 percent right. And that's the great thing about Shakespeare's characters. Many of them are multifaceted. I mean, you can't. Mm-hmm. You can, I mean, so in, in, in some of the well, that's I mean, there are also a handful of them that are just on there to in there to play their note. Right. They're just there right. to be that one note comic figure or that one note um, soldier, virtuous or evil or whatever it is. But um, but the beauty of Shakespeare, the reason we're still doing his plays 400 years later is that there is so much room for interpretation and nuance. And in some eras, you might you were talking about it plays land differently in different times. Um, uh, the, the, the characters land differently in different times. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, I think Richard III is always known, is always understood to be the anti-hero. You know, when right. they talk about, we just had the 20th anniversary of the Sopranos, like, and how the Sopranos invented the anti-hero. Well, no, Shakespeare invented the anti-hero 400 years ago. <clears throat> but, um, uh, uh, these are the characters you love to hate. The other thing that's, that I find interesting about all this stuff, and I'm not sure if this relates to your question quite so much, is that casting uh, changes who you are, you are sympathetic to as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if, 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 uh, if, if your production of Hamlet has a, a new rising young kid that maybe don't, people don't know quite as much about, but they know the two old actors playing Gertrude and Claudius, then you're going, oh, God, I'm rooting for Claudius here suddenly. Yeah. Um, or if they've got a famous ingenue playing Ophelia, I'm rooting for Ophelia. Um, but it's true, it's true, like in, or, or in, in Henry, uh, in the, the Hollow Crown version of uh, Henry IV, part one and two, which I believe I recommended to you when we talked about Thor on the Marvel Movie Minute podcast, um, that, had, that has Jeremy Irons in it. And usually you don't care about Henry IV because you don't know the actor playing him. You're always rooting for Hal. But suddenly when Jeremy Irons is playing Henry IV, you go, holy moly, I know. Now I know. Yeah what that guy is up to. And he is arguably not a villain, but an antagonist mm-hmm. to our hero, Hal. And, but in the hands of Jeremy Iron or in the mouth and lips of Jeremy Iron, you understand that side of the yeah. argument as well. And a hero is as only good is only as good as the villain he's up against. I, I, I keep telling myself that because when I was working in TV more, I would typically play just not outright villains, but mm-hmm. assholes and jerks. Yeah, <laughs> and and the, and the bigger the asshole jerk, the more heroic the series leads look. So I was always willing to absolutely bring my my a game, meaning my my asshole game. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can totally imagine that. I think one thing we've talked about before on this podcast is how often Hollywood or TV 
they will tell you how much sympathy you're supposed to have for the villain by what they look like, you know? And that's mm. so, like, in the first Avengers movie, you know, the Chitauri, they look terrifying. And yeah. Yeah. there's you can get it talking to, like, the way they're racially coded and stuff like that. Yeah. <clears throat> Whereas, um, you know, and, and um, you know, I think Jeff Bridges is a great actor and can be very charismatic. But when he plays Obadiah Stane in Iron Man, everything about his character says, don't root for me. You know, says, yeah. I am the bad guy. Whereas, yeah. you know, Magneto has always been one of my favorite heroes. Or, well, there's a slip of the tongue. One of my favorite villain slash antiheroes. Yeah. And as much as I feel like he has some very good points he's making, it's also because when words come out of the mouth of either Ian McKellen or Michael Fassbender, yeah. th- I'm going to pay attention. You know, I think there's a very intentional choice, like you said there, of, of casting very charismatic people because I want to believe those two, those two actors. Yeah, you do. And I think that's one of the reasons that Loki has become as popular as he is, because mm-hmm. Tom Hiddleston, great Shakespearean actor, uh, brings that sort of Shakespearean nuance and charm and wit yeah. to the character of Loki. Now, I, I think they've gone a little overboard now with making him so charming. He's still the god of mischief. He's still done some horrible things, and we mustn't forget that. But but in the in the series, at least, you see him wrestling so, sort of Hamlet like with what he has done and what he must do next. And that's really interesting. Yeah. No, I love that idea. And so one thing that I, I'm very curious about, I love that you brought up Iago. When I think of Shakespearean villains, the two that come most to, quickly to mind for me, and maybe this is because the one the stories I know best, but is Iago and Don John. From mm. uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. And, you know, Iago is like just this clear force of benevolent evil. Not benevolent, like malevolence and evil. Yeah. Uh, uh, we'll talk more about him in a bit. But then you take like some like Don John, who I remember at the time when that movie came out, it was pointed to as, look at what a bad actor Keanu Reeves is. You know, that he Which I think this- is wildly unfair. Right. because Well, and that's what I'm kind of asking is my impression is that he's supposed to be playing the kind of like... Othello is a tragedy, so we're supposed to really think about the villain. Much Ado About Nothing is quite literally that. It's meant to be a comedy. It's meant to be fun. So you need a villain to advance the plot, but he's not. you're not supposed to think about his motivations. Is that to, Talk to me about like the, the villain in the tragedy versus the villain in the comedy. Well, you don't. Um, uh, Shakespeare doesn't give you a lot to work with with Don John. I mean, he literally, I think he literally says, I, I will play the villain. Is there, is there, um, oh God, what's the line about mischief? Is there, is there... Something that I can make mischief on. Yeah, I um, think it's that. Yeah, he's he's he he's he's a bad guy who wants to do bad things, and you you don't really understand why he's been passed over, except you kind of under you kind of infer that well, his brother Don Pedro gets uh, all the girls and all the attention from the from his parents or whatever. But Don John is still a Don. They're both Dons, right. you know. They they've still both got status. Um. When I play, when I have directed Much Ado, um, I directed. Speaking of high schools, <clears throat> I directed um, as set in a 1950s high school. So it's as if it's as if we're we're at Rydell High, where in one corner of the school they're they're singing about Grease Lightning, but in our corner of the school they're speaking um, uh, Shakespearean prose and uh, blank verse. I love um, it. And in that one, I make I make her Donna John, and and I make her a fifties uh, greaser biker chick, 
Uh-huh. And so you sort of understand, oh, wait, she's being passed over, ignored because she's not a dude, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and that that that's got to irk that he's the golden boy, clearly. Right. And she is and she is so not. What I also love about that play particularly is 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 Donna John embraces or Don John embraces their villainy. Right. Right. Um, Because it's like, this is uh, almost as if, because this is the role that has been assigned to me. So I am going to play that role to the top because I clearly can't play any other role. Um, But what I, what I love in that um, is that one of Don John's henchmen, Baraccio actually confesses the crime. Confesses what they did and in and expresses genuine regret at what their trick has led mm-hmm. to, um, right. and I think that's a I think that's a wonderful thing. It's a, you don't think of Baraccio in Much Ado as one of the great characters in Shakespeare, but I think he really is. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, in the, my production, I mean, uh, he was Baraccia. Uh, uh, hmm. uh, he was a woman. They, Barachi oh, was a woman, female character, and um, and again, uh, uh, just through the casting, um, changes it to a you know a comment on sexism in the fifties, right. you know, which the whole play does also. And I love hearing that because I mean, especially you know, think about uh, comic books today and and superheroes today. That it, one of the best ways to bring out the toxicity in the fans is to gender swap or to race swap a character, you know, yeah. and like. Uh, hope one day I hope we're getting like hints we're gonna get a Miles Morales Spider Man who's the you know we had him in in animated you meant a uh, live action Miles yeah live action yeah. yeah into the Spider Verse is fantastic and it's it's part of what I love because it takes the Spider Man story and says but wait if he was a Afro Latinx uh, Afro uh, Afro Latinx student in New York City it's not gonna be the same thing as Peter Parker. He's gonna have different experiences. And that's yeah, it's yeah. such a great way to play with that story that what you're talking about doing. Well, and it's it's exactly what I've been saying about the about Shakespeare. I mean, it's if if you're just gonna do if you're just gonna do Spider-Man the same way, which we've already done the him the same way many times, you know, that's incredibly boring. Same with Shakespeare. If you're just gonna do it the way it was done 20, 30, mm-hmm. 400 years ago, that's incredibly boring. Yeah. I love seeing all these new heroes. In the in in the MCU and the DC verse, and I love seeing all these new uh, young actors playing Shakespeare roles. I think suddenly it's the same text, it's the same narratives, but they're brand new because brand new people are telling the stories, and I think that's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, like what you said about Empire to me is so great because I think with some some. Uh, with some reason, people often think of Shakespeare as like white people's theater, you know, because it comes from, you know, England and the fifth, yeah. which was a much more racially diverse society than we think of, but we think of it that. And so Empire, a show written by black people about black people in a very black dominated world, yeah. but it's still Shakespeare. To me, that's wonderful. Like seeing, yeah, we can take it out of the the boxes we think it it, it should be in, kind of like we're doing with, with Batman and all these other things. Yeah. So let's go back to the other side of it. Um, talk, talk to me more about Iago, because my impression has always been that, again, the one Shakespeare class I took in college, but this was 30 years ago, is that part of what makes Iago such an effective character is that he's the one who doesn't really have a justification. He he does just seem to be that kind of force of malevolence or the, the – part, part of why I'm asking this is because to me – when I hear in the Chris Nolan um, Batman movies, you know, uh, 
uh, Alfred say some men just want to watch the world burn about Joker, I I think of Iago. Is that you think is that a fair comparison? I I think it's absolutely a fair comparison, and I guess one of the one of my frustrations with Iago, but but which is also one of the things that makes him so I imagine fun to play is that the the reasons for his evil, his villainy, are not spelled out con- concretely by Shakespeare. Is right. it jealousy? Is it uh, racism? Is it uh, is is it is it homosexual jealousy? Does he is he jealous of Desdemona or is he jealous of Othello for having Desdemona? Um, uh, is it is it uh, a, a career? Um, uh, I, I've always wanted to I've always wanted to cast Iago with an actor who typically plays. Um, uh, uh, I mean, back in the day, it was it would be Elijah Cook Jr. or Wally Cox or Don Knotts, mm. uh, actors that play put upon guys, old weird guys, dorks that get killed in the first reel of a mm. of a of a gangster movie. Um, you want to believe that? Uh, yeah, this Iago, of course, he would be passed over. Of course, he would be passed over. Mm. You know, when it's Daniel Craig playing Iago, <laughs> you go, really? Why would you pass over Daniel Craig? You know, um, that uh, that that kind of casting is important. I've always wanted to see that and I never have. But I don't I think it's one of the it's one of the great things about Iago is that you don't really know. So there's a lot of room to play. But if you don't have an actor that has some charm to them, it's going to be a long evening because Othello's a long play. And I mean, unless you cut it. And you know where it's going. And I've gone on record. I probably said it to you guys in the Marvel Movie Minute podcast. But I think I find tragedy to be a vastly overrated genre for in terms of what um, it can what it can provide an audience. Um, uh, the 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 obverse inverse of that, the uh, opposite of that is that I think comedy is a much underrated genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I think comedy is a much better way of getting at many of these issues with the additional benefit of you get people to laugh and i also think that humor uh, relaxes an audience so you can kind of sneak up on them a little bit with serious things and this is one thing that i think the mcu has done so well the infusion of i'll call it shakespearean wit um uh into these serious uh not only earth shaking but universe shaking plot lines to the comedy acknowledges that what we're watching is ridiculous (laughs) and 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 what we watch in shakespeare frequently is equally ridiculous and i think comedy is a way of acknowledging that i i really like that i know i've I've heard i don't know if there's any accuracy to this but the idea that like romeo and juliet was originally supposed to be written as a comedy but then well and for the the first four acts well three acts it really is there's a lot of comedy in romeo and juliet and and and, and I, I really appreciate what you're saying there. I want you to go back to the Iago thing for a second, and then we can definitely dive in more of the comedy. Part of what you said about how like it's frustrating, but in some ways it makes the character work that you never know. I think that's part of why, I, you know, I love what Chris Nolan did with Batman. Don't love the third movie, but you're right. It, it, it kind of, it, it can go too far. And, and it definitely made me in some ways appreciate the Joel Schumacher, like, you know, campy gay parody of, which I think yeah. if you understand it in that realm, the movies are brilliant. Yeah. Well, at least the second one, bad movies, but brilliant. Um, but I feel like what he did with the Heath Ledger Joker, having numerous people ask him, why are you like this? And he tells origin stories that are mutually conflicting. Like the, yeah. his or, and you end it like the point, the point is you don't know. 
And like yeah. that to me was made him such an Iago character of it's just you're never gonna know and it, it and, and, and that and that lack of that that lack of ability to to define what the what you're what you're up against is part of the challenge of how to vanquish a bad guy or understand or even and maybe even empathize with a villain. You they right. become fascinating because you don't know. Right. Yeah. It's one thing I think often the Batman remakes get wrong is when they try to make every character like that. You know, I I just talked about Joe Schumacher in positive ways, but to me when you make Riddler. Just a, a Joker light, but in a green suit, you know, with question marks, it doesn't work. Where you make him a domestic terrorist, you know, as he was in the Batman, it yeah. it, it separates him from Joker in a way that I think makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I think they really defined them well, and it's and again, it's acknowledging it's acknowledging the ridiculousness of the fact that we're we're doing a superhero movie where the where where a millionaire billionaire puts on black makeup under his bat suit mm-hmm. <laughs> under his fetish gear yeah um uh you know you, you've got to acknowledge the truth of it and make it work for you as opposed to something that you've got to apologize for yeah i it's funny cuz i think of um going back to much ado about nothing the mo- and I think I may have said this on the Thor podcast as well, but the moment where I truly understand what Kenneth Branagh was doing in that movie in terms of wanting to use – because I think there's a lot of humor in Shakespearean wit, but you have to kind of speak that language, as he said. And there's a moment in Kenneth Branagh's thing where he brings in modern humor where it's it's where uh, – Kenneth Branagh's character, I forget uh, – Benedict. Benedict. Yeah, Benedict. Talk- yeah, Benedict. Thank you. And he's talking about the Emma Thompson character, whose name I'm also forgetting. Um, uh, uh, Beatrice. Beatrice. Thank you. And my understanding is that the line is supposed to be, "Love me, why it must be requited." Yeah. And what he does is he says, "Love me, why? Yeah, it must be requited." And like yeah. that, that use of like why as a comedic response, that that's a much more modern use of language. But Branagh just takes the exact words and just changes the intonation, and it makes a modern joke in the same text. Well, and he th- and there's similarly he throws away a line in um in uh, in Henry V where that I had to go back to the script to say, wait, did he ad lib that line? It's the line where um he's asking uh, Queen Catherine, who uh, doesn't speak any English and he doesn't speak any French, you know, can you tell me? Can you tell me why do you love me? Why do you love me? Can you? And he's getting so frustrated. I cannot tell, she says. I cannot tell. And he finally just gets frustrated and goes, well, can any of your neighbors tell, Kate? Good God. (laughs) And it's just thrown away, not in any Shakespearean grand way, but just thrown away like a person. Just talk like a person. Um, I think this is related to your point, not only the comedy that Shakespeare brings to his very serious plays, like Hamlet, um, um, like Richard III, but also the real pain and grief he brings to his comedies, and mm-hmm. which which frequently gl- gets glossed over. I think Branagh gets it right a lot of the time. Um, I, even Comedy of Errors begins with a... Comedy of Errors and... Um, Midsummer Night's Dream both begin with death threats. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, much ado about nothing. As much as we is a is a hilarious movie. It's a it's a, a, a play, but especially I, I know the Branagh version. Um, it, it's a comedy. It seems lighthearted. It's a story about slut shaming. Like the whole yeah. the whole ethic of the story is a woman who is a, a hero is supposed to marry our our, uh, uh, our our hero is supposed to marry our hero Claudio, uh, yeah. Claudio. 
And but then there's this rumor started, as you said, that she had sex with someone else. And so now she's she can't be married. And it's all about like the 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 honor duels that must happen. And it it's if you look at it through the modern eyes of our understanding of slut shaming, it's, it's the same story. Well, and this is why I don't do it that way. <laughs> Oh, interesting. Okay. I don't do it that way because who gives a shit about honor? Nobody, certainly nobody gives a shit about male honor anymore. Nobody, I don't certainly. And I really don't care about watching a play about uh, a man's honor being impugned because his fiance slept with somebody else. Um, uh, who cares? Nobody cares. You big friggin' baby. Um, what I did in, what I, <laughs> I did in, this. again, in my much ado that's set in a fifties high school, um, when you said it in a high school, you're dealing with young love. You're dealing with first love. And I make Claudio, Hero's um, boyfriend, um, the youngest, most naive, right. uh, most uh, 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 most deeply in puppy love version of that character that you ever see. So when he finds out, when he is told that his girlfriend, Hero, has betrayed him by sleeping with somebody else it's not about his honor he's just hurt you know mm. and you you don't you don't you certainly don't agree with what he does um but you understand it because we've all been there we've all right. been hurt in love because we've been betrayed or somebody doesn't love me the way i love them or whatever it is the other thing i do uh in that play in much ado when i direct it is i flip some of the lines between heroes father uh, who I changed to Hero's mother, and um, and the priest in the pl in Shakespeare's play, the priest is trying to defend Hero, and Hero's father is absolutely just wants to throw her to the wolves and let her die, and blah 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 blah. blah. And in my version of the play, it's the priest who who is angry at Hero, and Hero's mother who is on Hero's side. It's the same story. It's the same, some of the same issues, but the focus is on Hero's pain, not Claudio's pain, because fuck that guy. Yeah, I, I love that. And and also to me, that's a kind of the idea of you tell the story of the day, because I don't know much about the Shakespearean kind of historicity, and you can correct me here, but my guess is if you tell a story in which the priest is clearly the bad guy, it's a pretty religious society that might not go over so well, but in today's society, sure. the priest being the good guy is more of a challenging idea, you know. So of course you would switch it. Um, and and I also you know just go back to the playwright's intent. You know, it was listed as a it's a list much ado is listed as a comedy in the first folio, so therefore it was supposed to be funny. <laughs> yeah. So and it's not funny if suddenly it becomes a play about slut shaming. Then then mm -hmm. and then and then Hero takes Claudio back, which is even more icky. You yeah. know, it's just I, I don't want my audience feeling conflicted about about the happy the happy ending. I mean, yeah. you know that these are kids and this uh, their relationship is probably not one for the ages, but <laughs> you don't want to feel e unclean at right. the end of the play. I like that. And it's it's funny because part of what makes me also think about it is, you know, that title much ado about nothing. I mean, on the one hand, it can be about like, yeah, this is a silly, fun play, but it's also the whole point is that all these idiot men are getting toxic and dumb about nothing. About that is not really shouldn't be a big deal. Like it didn't happen. Right. And even if it did, like, okay, so And if you, know. you play it like it's that huge of a deal about honor and whatnot, then again you're going against the spirit of the title of the play. 
you're gonna make me have to like have trouble now watching my favorite Shakespearean movie, the Kenneth Branagh version. But I, I, I mean, I I have I do I have problems with that. That's fair. Uh, Kate that's Beckinsale fair. taking back Robert Sean Leonard. I just go. Yeah, oh. And why is it always the priest that wants that has the terrible idea of somebody pretending to be dead? <laughs> I mean, it's funny because as you're saying that, I was thinking how like lovesick teenagers getting into stupid hijinks. It's kind of a comedic version of Romeo and Juliet. Like I've never really seen a connection there, but. When it, you literally have a priest suggesting someone pretend to be dead, yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, I mean, the, uh, the the other, the reason I love that play, and I had I had gone away from it for about twenty years, twenty five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that play because of Beatrice and Benedict, because they're both such witty, sparkling people, and and their relationship is very funny. And everybody else in the play knows they're in love, but they don't. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about um, banter? Like, yeah, the banter <laughs> is amazing, and you get to see them negotiate their relationship in real time. You know, it's fun to see how the evolution of their relationship and how it can be done. It can be accomplished. Um, And then, of course, I remember the hero Claudio storyline. I go, oh, ew, I don't want to do this part of the play. So that's why I had to come up with this new way of doing it. I love that. And I I will also say it. it, um, I'll get to the more the comic book part of it, but also just I guess it's sort of little in this kind of world. When you say the word name Kate Beckinsale, I think of a woman in tight black leather you know, killing werewolves and zombies uh, in the Underworld movies. And so remembering that sweet, innocent hero is played by that same actress. Um, Pulling it back, the danger of having you on as a podcast guest is we can just go on these great tangents about Shakespeare itself. I apologize. Well, here's the thing. I think my audience is getting used to it. I I did an episode, in theory, about the Matrix movie, Mm. uh, the new Matrix movie a couple months ago. I had on a couple of people who are fantastic and knowledgeable about artificial intelligence. So we started with the conceit that maybe artificial intelligence doesn't have to be the enemy as it is in the Matrix movie. And then we just talked about the ethics of artificial intelligence for an hour and barely mentioned the movie. Which So there's a precedent here. But I do want to pull back just to ask this. When you think of kind of like the, the cast of villains, and if you want to narrow it to, to MCU or, or kind of pick it broader, who are some of the villains where you see most clearly like, okay, this is this idea of villainy from Shakespeare? That's a really good question. I mean, I mean, I think Loki is the most uh, mm-hmm. Richard the Thirdian um, mm-hmm. um, because of his charm, uh, because he announces flat out, "This is what I'm going to do." Right. Um, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, it's funny. Um, I didn't much much like Ultron as a villain um, when the movie came out because. That movie has many pleasures for me, but 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 um, uh, uh, delivering on the promise of a summer blockbuster isn't one of them. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think I found that movie much more entertaining, having watched uh, some of the MCU series that came out last year, and then going back and watching Ultron because there's so many scenes of people just sitting around talking. Yeah. They're so full of character stuff. It that that summer blockbuster movie felt more like an MCU series even though it came out whatever it was, eight years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's one of those, but Ultron was one of those smooth, silky, um, well-spoken um, yeah. bureaucrats that so many of Shakespeare's history plays are oh, full of. Um, and again, the uh, casting, I don't think James Spader cannot be charismatic. That's that's a yeah. hard ask, you know? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, I got to work with him on an episode of Boston Legal, and he's very funny. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> he's a very funny guy. Um, uh, I, I don't know. Na- name some other MCU villains, and I'll give you their... Uh... Uh, Killmonger. Oh, to Killmonger. Me, the, 
That's Killmonger's the Shakespearean. best. Yeah, the wronged, the wronged uh, son who was left behind. Yeah, Killmonger's the best. I mean, Killmonger's like Hotspur in in Henry IV. Um, mm. You know, the, the 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 man who should be prince because he has a better way of running the country from right now. He not a better way. He has a he has a he has a way that you can if you don't even if you don't agree with it, you can understand. You know what? Maybe Wakanda should be getting out in the world a little bit more and right. taking care of people around the world. They have the ability and they're squandering it. You buy his argument. Um, uh, and maybe he's more. Uh, 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 suited for rule than T'Challa. Yeah, I mean that's a really compelling. Uh, he's one of the great bad guys. Yeah, to to me, Killmonger and Magneto are very very similar in that regard. You know, in that yeah. they both have, they have both experienced trauma that yeah. our heroes haven't. Yeah, and they're making a point out of like you know. You know, whether it's Professor X or T'Challa, like, look, you've always had the spoon in your mouth. So, of course, you think the rest of the world's going to treat you well. I've seen the evil that men can do, which yeah. I don't know if that's a Shakespeare quote or something else. But, like, I've seen just how bad things can be. So I need to protect my people. And especially when it's someone like Michael B. Jordan or Michael yeah. Fassbender uh, or Ian McKellen, how can you not believe them? You know, because they make the case so compellingly. Well, and this is another point that I make in my Batman article for the Folger is that um, uh, uh, is that so many you see one of the joys of one of the joys of all of these remakes or reboots or whatever is that you get to see different actors approaching a role. And so even though you see Pat, I saw the trailers for Pattinson, I go, oh, God, here we go again. It was ultimately a really worthwhile uh, thing I've seen some I've seen some Hamlets and some Lears where I go oh God here we go again and yet some of those Hamlets go oh that was great I hadn't yeah. I'd never pictured the character that way I'd never pictured that character that way but um uh, 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 an iconic Black Panther is another iconic character that has similarities to Hamlet and mm, yeah. in that in in that T'Challa is also literally a prince who's father the king is murdered tragically and he has to face threats to his kingdom from outside right. forces including a relative in this time it's a cousin not his uncle right. so 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 killmonger is also maybe more directly related to claudius in hamlet but you really you really care about killmonger's reasoning you don't like his methods but you you believe that he has a valid point in a way that you don't necessarily with Claudius in Hamlet. Well, I was going to ask. Actually, oh, and, they... and sorry if I can if Go... I could just finish up this point too. And the other thing is, because we lost the gifted and charismatic and incredibly talented uh, uh, Chadwick Boseman, um, there will likely be another actor donning the cowl. Of the Black Panther, putting putting their stamp on another right. iconic role, and it might not be a man either, and that's fine with me. Yeah, no, I think they've been very clear. It's not going to be T'Challa. It's going to be whoever next takes that up that mantle. And yeah, we don't know who it's going to be. Yeah, uh, and I think that's fantastic. I'm about to I'm about to direct a production of Midsummer Night's Dream with just a very small cast. And uh, one of my friends, Christopher Moore, published a, a novel called Shakespeare for Squirrels, and they refer to Puck <laughs> as the Puck, like it's a title, the Puck. Oh, uh, I like that. 
and I think I'm going to what I'm going to try to do. I don't know. Talk talk to me later when I when this actually happens. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I want to have. There's only five actors in the cast. I think I want to have each of the actors play the puck at some point or another. They put on the satyr horns or they put on the fur vest or the cloven mm-hmm. hooves or whatever. They everybody play. It's a the 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 puck is um. A, a, a hero, a role, a role that people, different people play. He's not a single character. He's an idea, the puck. Oh, I love that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to make a, a wild connection here, but to go back to a much older set of stories, uh, and I do think of a set of stories, not a set, doesn't matter what belief you have in them, uh, but in, in biblical stories, we now have this character, we think of the name, the name of a person, of an angel, Satan. Mm. But actually in the Hebrew scriptures, there is... Hasatan, which is Hebrew for the accuser. And it's mm. the idea like that there's this person in the court of God whose role it is that when mankind goes up for trial before God, they're the prosecuting attorney, sort of. And it's this great example of like, it's not a person, it's a role. And there might even have been different angels who played that role over time. But then the Christians get their hands on the story and they turn it into Satan. So, yeah. I well, love and, that and, idea. And, and, and even in that sacred text, Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, they say to him, they say, so you are the Christ, the great, the Christ, mm-hmm. as if somebody else could have been the Christ. Maybe yeah. other people will be the Christ. Um, I think it's a very interesting idea. And again, Shakespearean in the sense that, you know, Shakespeare never challenged the rightness of the monarchy ever. He wrote about kings. I mean, this is now now we're talking about Shakespeare's relationship to um, Disney. <laughs> Disney, and, <laughs> Disney and Shakespeare have never once questioned, wait, should there even be such a thing as a monarchy? They just go, no, princesses, they're great. Well, and actually, that's an interesting question, because one thing we come up when we talk about a lot is, you know, it's known that Marvel has certain things that it doesn't want to do. Because it doesn't want to piss off people, you know, and it used to be that they would cut things out so that the movies could still play in China and other parts of the world. They're not doing that as much anymore. But, you know, they're owned by Disney. They're not going to be super anti-corporate. With Shakespeare, I don't know know if this is more the history side, is there evidence to think that that's in part because, like, in that time, you know, King Henry and then Queen Elizabeth, like, you, you couldn't get away with being a playwright who was openly challenging the monarchy? Oh, 100%. Oh, no, no, okay. no, no. He was he there's no way he could have done that. Right. Um he had in fact he had to be very clever about writing things in such a way that he didn't get hauled into the tower. Um right. and there's no evidence that he, that he did, but there's a lot of evidence that other playwrights of his time did get hauled into the tower for different reasons. Um right. And uh, so that was clearly but what Shakespeare managed to do so brilliantly and it's a little weird when you when you think about um, modern directors uh, putting their directorial conceptual stamp on a production. Um, mm-hmm. Shakespeare was doing that already. You know, when he's writing, he was writing about England of his time, but set several hundred years in the past, safely <laughs> several hundred right. years in the past, and writing about Henry the Sixth or whatever, or writing about King Lear and Macbeth. Just just King Lear and Macbeth were written just around the time that Elizabeth had died and James was taking over. And there was very real concern in the country about a divided nation uh, mm. and about usurpation and the dangers of all of that. And, and the Henry the Sixth plays were written when uh, which were also written about divided kingdoms and territories in France. Who owns what? Um 
that these were very real issues uh, yeah. in Shakespeare's day. But he was safely writing about other people and previous monarchies, um, so he could get right. away with that kind of stuff. Yeah, if you're going to write a truly ridiculous monarch, they're Danish. They certain no English prince certainly would ever right. be so innocent. Yeah. and if you're going to write about an, e I mean, this was a kind of a ballsy move. He wrote about he wrote uh, just as King James of Scotland was assuming the throne of England, he wrote about a crazy Scottish thane. So that was kind of ballsy on his part. That's impressive. And it, it it's the kind of thing where it's like, it doesn't make me feel better about the fact that, you know, Disney gets to have some control over what Marvel will or won't do. But it lets me know at least this isn't new. You know, this has been forever. And, and I, a long time ago at kind of a fan con, I heard this wonderful lecture on horror movies, especially in the 50s and 60s. And one thing they talked about was how, like, there was a lot of censorship. You know, obviously this is McCarthy and all that. But horror movies were seen as so ridiculous as so it's just for teens that McCarthy and the Red Scare people never bothered. And so you can have Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is deeply yep. searing commentary on McCarthyism. Yep. Yep. And no one notices because it's all about aliens and, you know, it's, it, it's far enough away. Kind of like you said, like, yeah, we can talk about the Danish monarchy instead of the English one. Well, and I think it's worth remembering too that Shakespeare was he Shakespeare was the corporate storyteller of his day. Um, he 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 only made money when they got butts in seats, when there were performances right. of his plays, and he was a part. He was not only the playwright but the uh, co-owner of the theater, so he took a take, a cut of all the ticket sales. So he was absolutely a commercial storyteller. And, uh, you know, his his trilogies and his tetralogies, you know, the Henry VI trilogy the, or the Henry Ad, which is Henry VI that goes up to Richard the, what is it, Richard II to Henry the, I forget how it goes. But then Henry IV's part one, Henry IV's part one and two, Henry V, then Henry V, um, these are all sequels. They're all yeah. sequels and prequels. So you can imagine people lining up at the box office to go, oh, what's going to happen in Henry Ford Part Two? the way we line up for Marvel movies now. You heard it here, folks. If people think that sequels are killing Hollywood and it's all Disney and Marvel's fault, nope, blame Shakespeare. That's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, this has been fantastic. I'm sure we can talk about so much more, but I want to kind of start to wrap up. Uh, so first of all, I'll just say in the kind of villain context, is there any other kind of last characters or comments you wanted to make before we kind of wrap up that particular question? I just only that I think Shakespeare understood that, uh, you know, the, the greater the villain, the greater the story. Yeah. Um, um, and I think also and I think in a way that they're beginning to figure out maybe in the MCU, although not so much in the DC movies, is that blend of comedy and tragedy, for want of a better word. That yeah. blend of the silly and the serious. Um, I think Shakespeare, there's way more humor in Shakespeare than most productions acknowledge. Yeah. Uh, I think Shakespeare was great about acknowledging the absurdity of what some of, of, what some of his stories do. You know, if there are any uh, Shakespeareans getting snobby about... Um, the fact that we're discussing superheroes in a Shakespearean context, we need to remember that Shakespeare's plays were were 
comic book premises to begin with. They have ghosts. They have witches. They have fairies from the forest. They are. They have um, um, uh, soothsayers, seers. Mm-hmm. The Shakespeare's plays are full of supernatural. Uh, characters and themes in a, in the same way that all these superhero movies are now. So I I love uh, I don't love the DC movies and I wish I did because yeah. I was a DC kid growing up. Um, but I think Kevin, regardless of Disney's uh, uh, corporate over overlordness, I think Kevin Feige knows what he's doing mm-hmm. um, in terms of handing handing individual movies off to various directors like Kenneth Branagh and whatever Taika Waititi mm-hmm. to bring their visions um, yep. to it. And 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 Waititi has been such a breath of fresh air oh. in terms of how he is able to walk that brilliant tonal line. Not so much in Guardians. Uh, well, he didn't do Guardians of the Galaxy too. Yeah. that was James Gunn. Um, um, well, yeah. Earlier when we were talking about the the comedy, you know, you and I talked about the first Thor movie. Thor Ragnarok to me is the perfect of that because it is so funny. Yeah, and like that opening scene where Thor is talking to the monster, it it's practically fourth wall breaking in the yeah. level of like the dialogue not fitting the situation. But then Odin dies, and it's about this family tragedy of. Yeah. You know, first of all, we're now three kids arguing over the history who who most pleases their father, because, you know, with uh, Hela being the one that the father sent away, we got Lear back on, on hand. Yep. But it's hilarious. And yeah. and yeah. It's, it's funny. And I think it's something Taika Waititi does so well. Um, This is outside the MCU. But if you ever want to see something that is truly Taika Waititi at his best of finding comedy, jo- the movie Jojo Rabbit, yeah. which is about... I- a Jewish kid hiding during the Holocaust. Yeah. And it's searing and it's hard to watch and it's hilariously funny. I, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. I think comedy is a, it's a much better way in. It doesn't and comedy doesn't mean you're being irreverent to the subject matter or to the source mm-hmm. material. Comedy acknowledges that there is deep deep absurdity in this thing what we call life in it. Oh yeah. Um yeah. I mean, uh you know, to make it personal, my mother's funeral was one of the I don't think I've laughed more and I many people talk about this like a funeral can be it's a tragic moment I cried a lot but also sure. we told a lot of funny stories about my mother and you know yeah uh, that's this is how we celebrate this is how yeah. we come together is I, I I think laughter is a you know at its best can be incredibly inclusive and mm-hmm. create communities amongst people who don't maybe have any other natural affinities necessarily mm-hmm. for each other so let me ask, this is kind of a closing question, then I want to give you a chance to kind of uh, tell the audience about the stuff you're doing. Um, what is for you, like I talked about how Warm Bodies was the one like, I would have thought Romeo and Juliet is zombies, but it works. What's for you the adaptation you saw where you might have wanted and going like, this doesn't seem to make sense of Shakespeare, but but you were just like, okay, it, but it works. Oh, that's a good question. I think it was She's the Man. Um, Amanda Bynes and uh, Channing Tatum. It was, a, it was It's their version of Twelfth Night, again, set in high school. Um, and and uh, Amanda Bynes has to dress like a, a boy like Viola in Twelfth Night to mm-hmm. be on the soccer team in order to hang out, in order to, to get to do what she wants to do. And she gets to hang out with Channing Tatum. And that was the first movie I'd ever seen him in. And I went, who is this kid? He's, he's this big Handsome looking dumb lug, but he was so good and clearly yeah. 
way smarter than the role he than the character he's playing. Um, that was the that was the biggest eye opener for me because I went in I I went and kind of going yeah okay I mean yeah. I love Ten Things I Hate About You but I thought I thought I would so that wasn't a surprise. Uh-huh. Uh, she's she's the man came at more as a, as a surprise to me. That's great. Well, thank you so much for that. So uh, I think a lot of our audience may have already known who you are. Uh, definitely have heard the Reduced Shakespeare Company. But for those who haven't, tell a little bit more about the where people can find your your plays, your writings. Uh, maybe even see people on see some of these on stage. Where, where can people go to learn more about uh, how to find you? You the the uh, you can find me. I'm pretty easy to find actually. <laughs> I'm on Twitter <laughs> at Austin Titchener. Um, I'm, uh, I also tweet for the Reduced Shakespeare Company at Reduced. Um, the Reduced Shakespeare Company website is reducedshakespeare.com. Every week I produce and host um, a, my weekly Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, which is the longest running um, theater podcast, I think, in the world. <laughs> since mm. this, It's been every week since December of 2006. Tomorrow I will drop episode 803. It's been 803 weeks. Wow. Um, one of my, uh, I also write these monthly essays, essays for the Folger Shakespeare Library, their Shakespeare and Beyond blog, which is where I'm talking about writing about the intersection of Shakespeare and popular culture. Uh, and during the pandemic, just about a year ago, um, I, 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 I hung up my own um, digital uh, shingle uh, by creating my own website called The Shakespeareance where um, I coach actors. I also uh, help writers work on plays or novels or essays or presentations, whatever. Mm-hmm. I've had a, a, a half a dozen, almost a dozen clients in the last year that I've helped uh, put together speeches, write plays, write novels. In fact, one one of my clients is publishing his novel that I helped him uh, help work on um, on May 3rd. So that's that's coming up. And uh, and of course, we just missed Shakespeare's birthday, which was last weekend. But um, uh, I also co-wrote with my RSC partner, Reed Martin, uh, pop up Shakespeare, which is all of Shakespeare's plays (laughs) and his sonnets in a a beautiful, beautifully illustrated by Jenny Maisel's five spread pop up book. And it's a it's a great way to introduce kids. But it's also um, truth be told, I pull it off my shelf every now and then because <laughs> it's a handy, it's a great handy reference. Going, wait, which which one's all's well that ends well? Is that the what was that? I can't remember. So, so I, you found a way to publish the most artistic cliff notes that's ever been published. Absolutely, we reduced all of his plays down to five pages of a pop up book. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to make sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. You can check that out. Definitely check out what Austin's got is doing. Uh, I'm going to keep saying Minnesota. Minneapolis has got a great theater scene. It's a little cold a lot of the year, but if you ever bring the shows up here, I would love to get to go go see it because it just sounds if, amazing. If, if there's a theater near you, uh, please call them and let them know they should bring in the Reduced Shakespeare Company. We, we will go wherever we're asked. I'll do it. I'll do it. All right. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this. And to our listeners, really would love to hear what you think. Um, are you big Shakespeare fans? Are the connections you've seen? Is some of this totally blowing your, you out of the water the way I was blown away, away with listen, talking to Austin the first time? Would love to hear your thoughts. If you go to theethicalpanda.com, that's our website, there you'll find ways to contact us on Facebook, on Twitter, all the different things. Email us, uh, whether you just want to share directly or want to uh, talk about it and have us read your comments uh, on the next episode. would love to hear from you. There, of course, you can also find all my other podcasts uh, where I talk about uh, the Star Wars universe. I just put up an episode uh, where we talk about the... Uh, uh, rock and roll album Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses, which if you want to talk about something that I absolutely loved at 10 years old and then heard again in my 30s and went, 
Ooh, these lyrics are, uh, I have a different interpretation of this. Uh, it's a great podcast. Check that out. All that is on theethicalpanda.com. So I have my, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, but we didn't even talk about whether the Joker is a fellow of infinite jest. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so oh, many well. connections. All Next right, well, time. Apologies. You just volunteered to come on again. So thank you so much, everybody, and have a great day.